Tēnā koutou, no mai haere mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. This morning we'll have the very latest on the outbreak and ask whether New Zealand was properly prepared for Delta. We just don't quite know the full scale of this Delta outbreak. Then is our intensive care capacity any better than at the start of the pandemic? And history repeats, exactly 20 years since they fled the Taliban. We're with survivors from the Tampa as they watch Afghanistan fall. It's so hard to describe the heartbreak and the tragedy of that country. It's almost like I'm standing on the footpath and you're watching the old house that you grew up in and lived in uh, and it's just up in flames. We'll have that interview for you shortly. But first, we are into day five of the level four lockdown as health officials try to contain the Delta outbreak. Yesterday, officials completed 56,000 vaccinations and more than 40,000 tests. But we've been told to expect case numbers to increase. COVID-19 Response Minister Chris Hipkins is with us this morning. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A, Minister. Thanks for being with us. Do you have any updates for us from overnight? Kia ora, Jack. No, no particular updates. We do expect that there'll be more cases today, though. I want to take a, a big picture look at this outbreak so far. Clearly from the last couple of days and the number of cases we've seen, Delta is highly infectious, even amongst those who have been vaccinated. Given Delta's infectiousness, is elimination still a viable strategy? Look, <clears throat> Delta does raise some big questions that we're going to have to grapple with. You know, a 24-hour period between, or less than 24 hours between someone getting it and then passing it on to others. That's like, that's like nothing we've dealt with in this pandemic so far. Um, and that does change everything. It does mean that uh, all of our existing protections uh, start to look less adequate and less robust as a result of that. So we, we're looking very closely at what more we can do there. But yes, it does raise some pretty big questions about what the long-term future of our, of our plans are. So how might our plans change? Um, look, too early to tell. We're still mm. aiming for elimination at this point, and I think uh, we, we, we do need to give it a really good go and see if we can drive it out again. Uh, that's absolutely our number one priority at the moment. That's absolutely what we're focused on. But we also need to drive up our vaccination rates, and we're really focused on doing that. We've recalibrated our vaccine campaign so that it can continue despite the level four lockdown. And in fact, if anything, it's actually going, we're doing more vaccinations now than we would have been had it not been for the lockdown. So we're, we're very focused on thinking and making sure that we're preparing for a different kind of a future. But at this point, we don't really know what that will look like. But, but just tell me a little bit more about how you and your officials feel that Delta is changing, um, changing the game. Well, I think if you if you look at our overall um, risk profile and what we've been doing to manage risk, you know we've uh, we've we've got a really good, robust managed isolation for people coming into the country um, in the pre-Delta world. Now, in the in the Delta world, though, it just highlights how quickly the virus can spread. Someone can have infected a number of other people before they even make it to managed isolation. So the very act of coming through the airport potentially um, becomes even more risky than it was before. So we're having to think really carefully about are there are, are there more things we can do to reduce risk? Now, the thing is, we've been doing that all along. So mm. that we've we've explored most avenues already. There there aren't a lot of extra gains we can make here. What alternatives might be available then? <clears throat> At some point, we will uh, we will have to start to be more open in the future. And the Prime Minister set some of that out a few mm. weeks ago for us. And, um, and, and that will include making sure that we've got a very 
uh, high vaccination rates. The more people that get vaccinated, mm. uh, then the more options we're going to have. But I hope you don't mind me saying this is this to me sounds like a, a change in tone and, and a minister facing the realities of a highly, highly infectious strain who is seriously reconsidering New Zealand's strategy. No, not at all. It's just a question of how that manifests itself. So I think we still want to try mm. and drive COVID out of as much as we possibly can, uh, that that's not that hasn't changed. That's the, the basis of elimination is that you drive it out wherever it pops up. I think we still absolutely want to do that, um, and that's exactly what we're trying to do at the moment. The, the reality, mm. though, is that with a you know virus that can be infectious within 24 hours of someone getting it, uh, that that does change the game a bit. Yeah, uh, of course we all want to do that, but are you saying it might not be possible? Look, at some point in the future, and again, we set this out a couple of weeks ago, so this isn't new thinking. At some point in the future, some of the measures that we are using, like lockdowns, mm. like a very, very you know, constrained border, uh, you can't sustain those forever. So at some point, you do have to have other alternatives. Um, and we're, we've been exploring those. So there'll be different settings at the border, mm. which will bring with them a different risk profile as well. Um, but what we've got to do is work out how we can continue with an elimination strategy with some things changing, including the fact that, you know, we can't sustain doing level four lockdowns mm. every time there's a community. So David Ke uh, Skegg's uh, expert advisory group warned uh, about the threat of Delta in New Zealand. We've seen comparable countries overwhelmed with Delta outbreaks. Were you prepared for this outbreak? Well, that's one of the reasons we moved so quickly as soon as we saw the first case, because we knew that this had the potential to really take off very fast. And that's exactly what's happened. Now, we've, with our level four lockdown, we're very well placed to be able to run it to ground. Um, but we have to be prepared for the fact that, you know, we can't do that every time there's mm. one of these. We won't be doing we'll be doing this in two years' time. So we are going to have to think of alternatives. We are going to have to uh, make sure we get our vaccination rates up. Uh, there's a whole lot of other things that we're going to need to do. But were you prepared for this? We were prepared for it, absolutely. Um, but, you know, having said that, I think just the, the, the scale of infectiousness and the speed of the spread of the virus um, is still something that even despite all the best preparations in the world has put our system under strain. There's no question about that. And I think the other thing is that if you look at the number of significant events where there were large groups of people, um, far more in this uh, outbreak than in any of the others that we have dealt with. And that has, again, just added to the number of people at risk. Um, and that's added a layer of extra pressure onto the system as well. Did your planning include the likelihood that people would have to spend six hours waiting for a test? Um, testing, we, we, we've scaled up testing massively. So we're doing, you know, mm. we're doing 10 times basically the daily testing rate to what we would normally do. And the labs are doing very well. Uh, the, the challenge, of course, is always going to be making sure that that testing's in the right place. Now, some places people aren't waiting that length of time and other places they are. And we do try and move mm. our testing capacity to, to meet the demand. Um, but the reality is, uh, unfortunately, when demand is so high, uh, we're not going to be able to, to give everyone a test in a very short space of time. If you look at the Wellington outbreak, for example, we mm. did have testing. People were able to get a test within about 10 minutes. Um, this is on a scale that we have never done before. That's what I'm wondering, though. As part of the plans for a Delta outbreak, had you expected that there might be some pockets where people had to wait for hours in their cars to be tested? I think that is a reality, and no matter how much mm. planning you do, you can't. 
that, that reality. What we have put in place, though, are some systems to make sure that those who we really need to get a rapid turnaround for are able to get their tests faster. So there will be some undisclosed testing locations where we're sending people who we need to get a rapid test result for them. Why didn't vaccination centres have sufficient PPE to continue vaccinating people in the middle of the Delta outbreak? It wasn't a question so much of PPE. It was more that they had to physically change what they were doing. So they had to, you know, make sure that they're, they're working in an environment where people are much more spaced out than they are at level one. Uh, they had to think of they, some of their systems and processes had to change. Um, now, they did all of that within the space of sort of 24 to 48 hours and then got back up to scale again. So I think the vaccine campaign did very, very well in making sure they adjusted from a level one environment to a level four environment very quickly. You're expecting cases to or case numbers to increase in the coming days and potentially coming weeks and months. If the 58-year-old from Devonport, the first case to be publicised in this outbreak, hadn't been tested when he was tested, is there a risk, given the infectiousness of Delta, that our ICU departments could have been swamped? We've got significantly more ICU capacity now than we did have when we first started dealing with COVID-19 a year and a half ago. Um, and hospitals have contingency plans in place to convert general wards into um, into facilities mm. to, to cope with, with COVID-19 patients if we get to that point. There's no question, though, that if you end up with a wide-scale outbreak of COVID-19, mm. the health system comes under pressure and again no amount of planning is going to be able to completely um, alleviate that now we can plan for it we can be mm. ready for it which we are but it is it'll still bring our health system uh, under enormous pressure I, I want to read to you a quote from dr craig carr who's the new zealand chair of the australian uh, australasian intensive care society he's going to be with us in a couple of minutes but he said actual resource bed capacity on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of a bed with a nurse and a ventilator and all of the monitors that has not risen to my knowledge in the last 18 months. He's saying our ICU capacity with all of those different elements hasn't increased. One of the big challenges there, of course, is the staffing component of that. So, yes, we've got more ventilators, we've got more wards that can be converted into ICU, but ICU requires a very, very high ratio um, of staff to patients. So our capacity so, hasn't actually increased then since the start of the pandemic? Well, staffing capacity, you, you can't just magic up extra healthcare workers, the staffing capacity will continue to be a constraint. But you can see um, order settings to keep them in the country. What we've what we've seen, and we and we are as much you know we're, we're bringing in health workers across the border uh, quite frequently. Mm. But every country in the world that's dealt with this has had to adjust their ICU settings, uh, which has included lower ratios of staff where they have uh, significant numbers of COVID patients. So so, is our ICU capacity prepared for a Delta outbreak? If Yep, we've got more machines, we've got more ventilators, but we don't actually have any more staffing capacity than at the start of this pandemic. Well, they've, done, they've been doing some work about making sure that they're upskilling additional staff who can be brought in to relieve some of that pressure. Now, they may not be 100% fully trained, uh, you know, ICU specialists, mm. but they will be people who relieve some of that pressure. So the, the DHBs have been doing that over the last 18 months. You've substantially uh, ramped up the vaccination process yesterday. Congratulations. A new record 56,000 vaccines were administered in New Zealand. In a couple of minutes, we're going to show everyone some pictures of Dr. Ash uh, Dr Ashley Bloomfield being vaccinated this morning. But there is still a fundamental question about the vaccine rollout that, to my knowledge, hasn't been answered clearly. 
if we had offered Pfizer a premium, if we had offered Pfizer more money, would New Zealand have received the vaccines earlier? No. And, and let me be very clear on that. The only way we could have increased the volume of vaccines that we, we've been administering earlier would have been to have used other vaccines in addition to Pfizer. And we made the decision that, we, we, that you know, Pfizer was the best of the options that we had available to us earlier in the year. Um, and that did mean that the bigger volumes were, we had to wait till the second half of the year to get them. So there was absolutely no way in those negotiations that New Zealand could have arranged to get any Pfizer vaccines earlier than they've arrived? No, that was certainly never presented to us as an option. Okay. Um, I want to talk about schools. Once, once things do start up again sometime soon, hopefully, um, given the infectiousness of Delta amongst younger people, are you considering advising school students to wear masks? Um, look, we haven't got that quite that far ahead yet, um, but we will look at our education settings as well and to see whether there are additional things that we might put in place to, to minimise the risk. Uh, obviously, we want to get to the point where, uh, if we can, where we can be a bit more normal as we mm. were pre, you know, a week ago. Um, but uh, you know, we'll we'll look keep everything under review. It's interesting that you haven't you haven't considered that yet. Does that mean the likelihood that schools will return this week? while Delta is still in the community in some parts of New Zealand, is pretty low? Look, we're making arrangements uh, to ensure that kids can continue to learn from home, and I'll say a bit more about that later on in the day today. As we did last time, we were in a, in a, a lockdown. And every other time that we've had um, level three or above lockdowns, we've made provision for that, uh, and we'll, we'll do that again. Um, we don't know at this point mm. uh, how long we're likely to in these conditions. But I mean, from what you were saying at the very start of this interview and from the sense you're getting from your health officials and experts at the moment, what is the likelihood that some degree of lockdown in, say, Auckland is going to continue for weeks? Uh, look, I think it's likely that there, there will at some point be some differentiation across the country if we don't see um, spread into other parts of the country where at the moment we know the contacts are spread all over the country, but if we don't start seeing positive results out of those contacts, um, it may be that we can start putting some regional boundaries in place as we have done before. Um, and so there may be different alert levels in different parts of the country, which again, we've, we've, we've managed that before and we can do that again. Would your advice be to people in Auckland and Wellington to start mentally preparing for an extension to lockdowns? Uh, look, at the moment, I still I, I still don't know what's what's likely to happen in Wellington. Um, we've still got a relatively small number of locations of interest there. At least one of our cases basically mm. didn't go anywhere in Wellington. Um, so still a question mark there. We'll know more. Uh, in Auckland, we are still picking up significant numbers of cases, uh, significant numbers of locations of interest. Uh, if I was in Auckland, I'd certainly be preparing to be at home for a bit longer. All right. Thank you very much for your time. We know you're very busy. We really appreciate it. That is Chris Hipkins, who is the COVID-19 response minister. Coming up on Q&A, who is going to take the economic hit from the lockdown? But next, several hospitals have been affected by this outbreak. Are our intensive care units actually ready for more cases? Kia ora iti, we welcome back to Q&A. Around the world, health systems have been overwhelmed by COVID-19 outbreaks, with intensive care departments bearing the brunt. So is New Zealand's ICU system in a fit state to handle this outbreak? Dr Craig Carr is the Regional Chair for the Australian and New Zealand Intensive Care Society. Tēnā koe, thanks for being with us, Dr Carr. What is the likelihood of a spike 
of ICU patients in the coming weeks? Kia Jack. Um, the ICU community have studied how COVID works around the world and in non-vaccinated patients, for every 100 patients in the community who become infected with COVID, we expect between 10 and 14 admissions to hospital. And of those, two to four would come to the intensive care unit and the rest would go to the wards. So as we see numbers in unvaccinated patients rise, we anticipate that there will be some patients who work their way through hospital admission and ward admission. Are you ready for it? Um, the intensive care community in New Zealand is an incredibly dedicated team of professionals and we have some wonderful expert nurses and doctors who amongst them have given um, care for many years that we know through evidence results in the best outcomes for intensive care in the world. And so in as much as we can be, we have prepared for this. Um, we have been rehearsing over the last year, following information, but the reality is the best possible thing we can do is to minimize the demand on the healthcare service mm. and minimize the spread of this lethal virus to the public. And that's done by following the guidance that has been given by the public health officials. So level four lockdown to absolutely minimize transmission is essential. And then all the other rules about hand hygiene, social distancing, wearing your mask, as Minister Hipkins already alluded to, um, you know, this is more infectious than previous strains. And therefore it's all the more important yeah. that we are absolutely fastidious in observing these things. And if we do have to go out for essential things only, use your COVID tracer app. Um, what did you make of the Minister's comments regarding intensive care capacity in New Zealand? Um, I think it's fair to say that it's been spoken of widely. The capacity of intensive care in New Zealand compared with comparative countries in the OECD is relatively low. So for instance, we've between two and three times, uh, sorry, Australia has between two and three times more intensive care beds than we have. In the last year, there has been some additional funding to open a few more intensive care beds. But again, as the minister alluded to, the challenge there is that the bed requires expert staff to care for the patient in it. Mm. And to keep one intensive care bed open for a whole year, 24 hours a day, requires five to six expert trained intensive care nurses. Now, it takes four to five years to train an expert intensive care nurse to become a senior intensive care nurse. It takes five to seven years to train a doctor to become a senior intensive care doctor. So you can't um, radically increase the number of staff you have overnight. That has to be part of a sustained long-term strategy. The ICU community is working very hard in partnership with the ministry mm. to develop such a strategy over the next 15 years. And we hope to see the investment and resource grow over that period. But in the short term, um, you know, it is a real challenge because not only do you have to recruit new nurses if you're opening new beds, but you also have to replace the attrition of nurses who are leaving just through retirement or they might be emigrating back to their own country or they might have chosen a different career pathway. Mm. And so it really is, especially in these times of um, closed borders, it's a real challenge to, to open more beds. So to be absolutely 100% clear, with the ventilator, the monitor, the staff and the bed itself, 
has New Zealand's ICU capacity increased since the start of the pandemic? Um, to get that answer precisely, you would have to speak to every DHB individually. But it is my understanding that there has been very little change indeed in the last year. We have received funding to open more beds, but we've been unable to recruit the staff mm. to operationalise them. What would it take in terms of an outbreak for New Zealand's intensive care departments to be overwhelmed? Um, I think we've all watched the television programmes and seen images from countries um, where services have become overwhelmed. Some of those services are less well-resourced than New Zealand, such as India, and some are better resourced than New Zealand, such as Italy. And I think the best way of looking at that is what do we have to do to avoid getting into those situations? And that comes back to the, the public health advice. You know, observe the level four lockdown absolutely fastidiously, stop transmission, stamp out the virus, and as soon as you are eligible, get vaccinated. Um, I have a friend in the United Kingdom that I speak to quite regularly, and I think it came from social media there. They have a little aphorism, a truism, that is one dose of vaccine saves your life, two doses of vaccine saves you from requiring admission to hospital. Now, I've checked that with friends and colleagues who work in intensive care in Australia and New Zealand, and they say that pretty much that's true. If you have a single dose of vaccine, it will probably save your life. If you have two, it just reduces the stress on the health system. Could anything more have been done since the start of the pandemic to increase our ICU capacity? Um, it's a difficult question to answer. Um, we have worked very hard and collegially with um, one another as a community, mm. with the Ministry of Health. We have secured more equipment. Um, you know, so we, we have secured um, enough equipment to open potentially, albeit incredibly um, transiently and with great stress upon the system. We could expand potentially up to 500 beds with life support kit. Um, but a surge capacity bed is not the same as a business as usual intensive care bed, because in a surge capacity bed, you have part of your care provided by experts, who is their normal day job, and part of your care will be provided by very dedicated, caring and loving healthcare professionals, but for whom it is not part of their normal day job. Mm. And we know from overseas that as soon as we start to flex into surge capacity in our hospitals, um, we start to see poorer outcomes. It is better to have the surge capacity than not to have it. It is better not to need it than to have to use it. And so again, I come back to everyone, please, please, please be vaccinated and observe the lockdown. You talked a little bit about attrition for staff working in ICUs. Yeah. Has that been an issue in the last 18 months? Have you had problems keeping nurses and staff in New Zealand? Um, yes. Um, we have had several challenges. One of them is just the, the standard retirement and resignation um, and um, people going to work elsewhere because their spouse works elsewhere. Um, we've also had challenges um, getting new people in um, from overseas and recruitment. And partly you don't want to denude other health systems of their vital staff. But of course, there are barriers that you have to cross quite rightly. You have to know that the people coming to work in, in your system are um, sufficiently well trained and expert to, to work there. Mm. Um, so it, it's been a difficult time for everyone. Um, 
I think there is a, a piece of work going on, I believe, at the moment to see what else we can possibly do to facilitate um, easier extension of work visas. Um, is there anything we can do to make seamless things like MIQ? If we've got healthcare workers that might be interested in coming, how can we make the whole process more seamless? But um, I'm only aware of these um, vaguely in my capacity uh, of a, a, an ICU practitioner. We'd be much better to speak to the ministers of immigration, health, um, the New Zealand Nursing Council, um, to understand that in more depth. Several hospitals have been affected by this Delta strain outbreak so far. How much of a concern is that to you? Um, any person, whether a member of the public or a patient, exposed to um, Delta variant COVID, it, it's clearly a huge concern mm. because it's, it's a, a very dangerous disease in anyone that's exposed to it. In hospitals, the risk will be slightly higher because patients already have other illnesses that can um, increase their risk and susceptibility, such as hypertension, um, diabetes. Um, and equally, if staff catch this, they may have to be isolated and go away from work. So we denude our mm -hmm. healthcare system of nurses when we most need them. The other side of that story, of course, is that healthcare workers and frontline workers have been vaccinated already. Um, so they have slightly higher protection afforded to them. And many of the patients who would be susceptible, such as those with hypertension, patients over 65, they have also been prioritised for vaccination. So there is a concern there, but we'd have to watch how things map out to see what's going to happen. Kia ora, Craig. We really appreciate your time. You stay safe. That's Dr Craig Carr, who is the New Zealand Chair of the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society. Up next on Q&A, Dr Ashley Bloomfield gets the jab, the economic impact of lockdown, and then later, the fall of Kabul. The Taliban has pledged to give Afghan women greater freedoms than in the past. But what will life be like once foreign troops are gone? Feeling great, actually. It's really nice to have got to this point. I've been talking about the vaccine for months. My age group uh, came online just a couple of weeks ago, and so I used booked my vaccine last Sunday was able to get a slot today. So one of the things we've seen, of course, with the outbreak is huge uh, increase in interest in getting people getting their vaccination as soon as possible. And I can certainly recommend the experience. The staff are hugely committed and just doing a great job. That was Dr Ashley Bloomfield and his mighty biceps <laughs> being jabbed a short while ago. The Director General of Health's first vaccine dose. With the whole of Aotearoa at alert level four, the government's business support packages are back in play. Of course, the official cash rate has been held at a record low, but the economic impact of the nationwide lockdown is significant. Rosie Collins is an economist at Sense Partners and is with us this morning. Tēnā koe. Oh, he a tāhua te What a beautiful painting, Rosie. <laughs> what did you make of the government's initial economic response? Yeah, I think it's probably what we expected. The wage subsidy is so essential in letting people lock down safely. Um, when it's not comprehensive, we've seen in other countries, people just can't afford to lock down. Something like 40% of New Zealand households don't have any basic savings. I have less than $1,000 in the bank at any one time. And if you don't pay people to stay at home or subsidise their loss of income, people just won't. So it's, I think, a really obvious choice that they've put the supports back in place. Yeah, New, New Zealanders have, throughout this pandemic, 
listened very closely to expert advice and have been pretty, um, you know, pretty understanding of the requirements to stay at home. Do you think that uh, wage subsidy plays a role in New Zealanders behaving? Usually, um, it just takes the pressure off and it means that we can lock down effectively and as, for as short a period of time as possible. Um, I think overseas, when it's not been in place, people just have gone out and, and found cash jobs or other ways to make an income and haven't done what's most necessary, which is to stay at home and get through the lockdown as quickly as we can so we can get back to normal. Let's look at some of those monetary policy settings. Of course, the Reserve Bank had been expected to raise the official cash rate this week by as much as 50 basis points. In the end, in a response to the lockdown, they decided to hold it at that record low, 0.25%. Was that the right call? Yeah, yeah I think, again, um, there was so much uncertainty with the lockdown, and the whole thing with inflation targeting is getting people's expectations under control. Um, there's no real upside to going too soon. They did that after the... Um, financial crisis in 2008, they hiked twice before they had to flip-flop back down. Um, and I think that's far worse for uncertainty than just staying where they are, because they can get to it later. They've got, you know, all the time to get there. Certainty is obviously very important, but over the last 18 months we've seen a significant increase in inequality in New Zealand, and many people have put that down to a low OCR and record low interest rates. So is there a danger that certainty comes at the expense of equality? I think it um, depends on what the settings have been for those low interest rates. So in New Zealand, we've seen a lot of that money flood into secondhand housing. Um, it's most like we've all gone to the op shop and bought houses that already exist. Um, and something like $400 billion has gone to net household wealth in the last year. But lending to things like businesses and farms have fallen. Um, so what you'd normally expect from low interest rates is investment in productive capacity. So we can have this period of what they call Sort of creative destruction, clear out businesses that aren't productive and start again to rebound. Mm. Um, but we've we've directed our money into the most obvious place where you can leverage the most and that's into houses that already exist. And that's the issue for inequality in New Zealand is really the housing story. What role do lockdowns play in inequality? I think the lockdown thing you've got to be really careful with because obviously people who are in lower incomes bear the brunt of that. They have reduced hours and reduced wages. Um, even with the wage subsidy. Mm. And whereas people who are better educated can more easily transition to work from home and don't face the same income shock. So there's that aspect of it. But then you've also got to think about what the alternative is. Um, and I mean, the UK, I think, is a great example. I was over there last year. This is my first level four here in New Zealand. And they've had three lockdowns as well, but they've only done them um, to a sort of extent and people, the business closures there are far higher than our business closures. And that means more people laid off um, than what we've had. So I think lockdown, it's not about us being back to normal. It's about us dealing with Delta and having all that uncertainty and job losses and business disruption that comes with that. Mm. The COVID-19 response minister was quite interesting this morning. He, you know, he, he basically said that while the government is continuing to pursue an elimination strategy for the time being, and given our vaccination rates, that makes a lot of sense for the time being, he said already, given the infectiousness of Delta, officials are reconsidering some of their strategies for the future. What would be yeah. the economic impact of opening up New Zealand with a higher percentage of the population vaccinated, what would be the impact uh, on our economy of, of having Delta in our community with a largely vaccinated population? Yeah, I think I think that conversation has to come at some point, but 
at current vaccination rates, we're going to be like halfway through our advent calendars at Christmas before that's even a possible conversation. Until then, we've still got four months before that letting Delta in story is um, really an option because mm. before that, we're going to have deaths, we'll have um, business closures, outbreaks randomly that would cause so much more economic disruption than a hard and fast lockdown for the current period. Um, so I think they've got to try eliminate. And if they can't, then that's a conversation for six weeks' time or five weeks' time or whenever they decide to change course. But I think for now, it makes sense. When you look at the remaining money in the government's COVID-19 response fund, are you confident that we won't use that all up without needing to borrow more? I actually don't think that matters. Um, the cost of debt right now is so colossally low. It's 2% um, of our tax income. In 2008, it was 6% of our tax income. And in the 80s, it was 25% of our tax income. So just in the last 100-year period, it's never been so cheap mm. to borrow money. Um, we're about $8 billion better off than Sweden um, as of March this year, just because of our lockdowns. And the lockdown cost us about $10 billion for that first one, in terms of the wage subsidy, anyway. Um, so that's paid itself off. And so, yeah, I think given that debt is so cheap, it makes sense to borrow it to pay the wage subsidies and et cetera. Uh, after last year's level four lockdown, we saw economic activity bounce back pretty quickly. What will happen this time, do you think? I think it's going to be a different um, story slightly. So we've had very few business closures in the last year, actually less than in 2018 and 2019. Mm. So we've done remarkably well to keep businesses afloat. Um, but that will be temporary and business closures will come um, as a result of the disruption. We're not completely in a golden scenario. I think the labour shortages will be a key part of that. Um, you hear it a lot already, and I think that's only going to worsen as people realise that they can move to Australia and get paid a lot more um, mm. and have the cost of living a lot lower. So, All right, that's a concern to keep an eye on. Yeah. Hey, thank you so yeah. much. We really appreciate your time. Stay safe. It is Rosie Collins. Right, thank you who is an economist with Sense Partners. After the break on Q&A, the terrible sadness of Afghanistan, the Taliban, and watching history repeat. You know, we left in 2001 because the fighting that was in Ghazni, the city, it was almost about to reach our village. And now, 20 years later, it's exactly the same situation. Tēnā koutou, welcome back. Exactly 20 years ago, hundreds of lives hung in the balance, their future in the hands of New Zealand and Australia. The story of the Tampa incident started with the Taliban in Afghanistan, a group of desperate asylum seekers, and a storm at sea. Like a little bath toy at the mercy of an insolent child, just being thrown around by the ocean. There is a night way out on the Indian Ocean that every Tampa survivor remembers. No one could swim. That whole boat, like the whole 438 people, no one could swim. Hundreds of kilometres from land, a wooden fishing boat crammed with desperate people lies dead in the water. The beams shatter, the decking splits apart, there's holes in the side of the boat. And it's at that very point that I truly understood the situation that we were in. And that was one of just immense fear that was then replaced with realization that this was it. You know, this was the moment that you were going to meet your maker. You know, this was, this was when we were going to die. Afghanistan, 2001. A few months before 9-11 and the American invasion. 
The Taliban had essentially overrun the country at that time. Being an ethnic minority, you know, we look, we talk, we worship uh, differently to the majority of Afghans. Uh, we're always in the, in the crosshairs. They come to school and club for fitness stuff and like a shopping center and the public transport, the bus, they attack and killing people. Ali Ahmadi was a 25-year-old truck driver, a father of three, when he decided to flee. My wife was pregnant as well. Uh, I'm really scared, I'm really worried about my family, and, but we haven't got any choice. We haven't got any choice. We can't stay in Afghanistan. We, we told every minute the people is coming to kill us. A group of mainly Hazara Afghans fled to Pakistan and then Indonesia, intent on asylum in Australia. In our heads, we were thinking that, you know, obviously we've paid them, it would be like a cruise ship type boat, right? Sakina Iwazi was only five. Her parents tried three different sailings on three different boats before smugglers crammed her and more than 400 others into a rickety fishing boat. Unless you've been through something like that or you've witnessed it or experienced it firsthand, uh, not many people realise how incredibly, incredibly desperate you have to be to pack up everything that you've known for something completely uncertain. But having escaped death in the mountains of Afghanistan, they faced it once again in the rolling waves of the Indian Ocean. A dead engine, a storm, no radio, no hope. It's worse and worse. Every hour, the wife is worse. It's coming bigger and bigger and bigger. Oh God, if we are to drown tonight, then please at least let our bodies wash ashore so we can be buried on land. Did you think in the storm that you would die? Yes. Yeah. But in August 2001, the storm at sea broke to a dot in the distance. Someone says, look, there's something on the horizon. And uh, Dad and I rush up, and he puts me up on his shoulder, and we look up, and out there in the horizon, piercing the, the sea, is this small black dot that's, you know, inching towards us. And as it gets closer and closer, we start to make it out, and it's a, it's a container ship. And this thing just grows and grows and grows, and we see this giant, great red wall of metal just hulking towards us and uh, that's when we knew we'd been rescued. The crew of the Norwegian container ship the Tampa had answered a rescue call from the Australian government pulling alongside the crumbling fishing boat and pulling everyone to safety. It's almost as if you've been trapped under a wave in a current and you're just breathing and kicking and trying to break the surface and you finally do and it's that first breath of air that's the best way to describe it. When we climbed up on top of the Tampa and we were on what felt like solid ground, that's what it felt like. I was the third person to be rescued from the whole 438 people, so that's like something I'm really proud of. <laughs> <laughs> what happened next became a defining incident in Australasian political history. It remains our very strong determination not to allow this vessel or its occupants, save and except in humanitarian circumstances clearly demonstrated to land in Australia. Australian Prime Minister John Howard refused to accept the asylum seekers. 
But the Tampa's captain steamed to the closest port at Australia's Christmas Island, arguing the asylum seekers needed urgent help. The ship was boarded by special forces and the Tampa's captain threatened with people smuggling charges. In a standoff that lasted days and led to a huge surge in John Howard's political support, the Tampa's asylum seekers lived on the deck of the container ship. Would New Zealand, in entering those talks, be prepared to take some or all of the, of, of, of the refugees currently on board the Tampa? Well, that's what we'd have to look at. But New Zealand's government struck a more empathetic tone. We have offered to admit up to 150 of the asylum seekers from the Norwegian vessel, the Tampa, for processing and eventual resettlement. The question of legacy looms large over the Tampa. The incident is credited with John Howard's re-election. It led to the construction of Australia's offshore detention centres. In 20 years since the storm at sea, New Zealand's Tampa survivors each have legacies of their own. Me, for example, I really value education and like that for me is the biggest achievement like in my life. Sakina Iwazi received a top award from AUT's Visual Arts School for her shipping container Tampa-inspired university project. She speaks four languages and recently helped to buy her parents a house. Do you think they made a good decision? I, made, I think they made the best decision. <laughs> I'm so glad to be here. Ahmadi is my last name and the geography, the place I was born. Ali Ahmadi and his sons run a growing business empire in Christchurch. Six days a week and 12 hours a day. Until now, I do this. Six, six days and 12 hours. Sometimes I'm very lucky, 10 hours. <laughs> yeah, To help myself, to help my family, to save my own feet and also to help a community. Ali wanted to use his interview to explain he has space to employ 25 extra staff. You're a Kiwi now. Yes. I'm Afghan Hazara Kiwi. I'm really proud to say I'm a Kiwi. And after fleeing the Taliban, Abbas Nazari became a Fulbright scholar, studying for his masters at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., in 2001, his family arrived via the Tampa. Last month, he arrived home via MIQ. But as they mark the anniversary, the Tampa survivors are watching their homeland fall. The Taliban are back in charge of Afghanistan. It's so hard to describe the heartbreak and the tragedy of their country. It's almost like I'm standing on the footpath and you're watching the old house that you grew up in and lived in. Uh, and it's just up in flames. And inside that house is memories, it's relics, it's history, and people in distant faces and places that you might have known, and you can't do anything, and no firefighters are coming to put it out. It's more or less the same as when you left 20 years ago. Yeah, uh, uh, it was. It's almost like just the arc of life has just circled exactly back. Nothing's changed. You know, we left in 2001 because the fighting that was in Ghazni, the city, it was almost about to reach our village. And now, 20 years later, it's exactly the same situation. In 2001, the Tampa survivors fled the Taliban for safety in Aotearoa. So far, New Zealand's government says it has no plans to accept additional refugees from Afghanistan outside of its usual intake. But history in Afghanistan is repeating.
Yes, if ever we were all in a need of a bit of perspective. Abbas Nazari has published a memoir reflecting on the Tampa survivor's extraordinary journey. After the Tampa is an amazing story. It's out and available this week. After the break, what more can New Zealand do to help with the Taliban back in charge of Afghanistan? Kia ora tiwi, hoki mai anō. As you saw in our story, Kiwi Abbas Nazari fled the Taliban and found safety as a refugee in Aotearoa. He has just returned from the United States, where he completed a Fulbright scholarship in security studies, and he watched closely this week as the Taliban swiftly reclaimed control of Afghanistan. Abbas is with us this morning. Kia ora, thank you for being with us. Watching those images out of Kabul and Afghanistan this week, what did you think? Kia ora, Jack. Uh, so awesome to be back here in Christchurch and, um, you know, worlds apart from what's happening over there in Kabul right now. Um, I personally have six uh, family and friends over there uh, currently literally at the gates of Kabul airport uh, trying to get on one of the Australian or New Zealand uh, DF planes. And, uh, you know, like I said in that piece, it's like you're watching their house burning and here you are. Uh, on the footpath watching it, and there's no firefighters coming. So it's a tragic, tragic time. Abbas, not only do you personally come from a refugee background, but you've studied security studies at Georgetown. Why do you think Afghanistan fell so quickly to the Taliban? You know, there are so many uh, elements and factors that come to, come to play there. I mean, a mix of internal and external. I know we here in the West always focus on, you know, uh, American imperialism and all the rest of it. And that, you know, has some legitimacy to it. But there, Afghanistan also has a raft of internal and domestic issues. Uh, it's never, you know, last week, yesterday, sorry, yesterday we celebrated 100 years of Afghan independence, 100 years to the day. And in that time, Afghanistan has never felt uh, as a nation. There has been no sense of nationhood which is why it has always uh, encountered the troubles that it has. Yeah. That country has endured uh, five decades of conflict uh, and now probably entering a sixth, and it is a tragic cycle. I think the collapse of the Afghan National Defence and Security Forces was a mix of incredible overconfidence uh, by American intelligence agencies and the military over there to say, yes, we can win this war. But I think that that was uh, a, a complete overestimation. I hate to use sporting analogies for something like this, but um, I wondered in watching those images this week, given all the resourcing that has gone into the Af uh, Afghan National Security Forces over the last 20 years, is it simply a case of the Taliban wanting it more? That's right. I think uh, the Taliban do want it more. Uh, but you have to, you have to understand... Um, a certain section sector of New Afghan society support the Taliban. You know, it is not a, it is not a, a complete wall up against them. That they do have support on the ground over there. We also can't uh, we also can't underestimate the the impact and the motivations of other countries in the region, particularly across the border in Pakistan, who have actively uh, trained and armed those Taliban militias. I mean, by and large, those people that you see on TV marching into Afghanistan, marching into Kabul. Uh, those are Pakistani nationals, and they should be treated as such. Um, but at the same time, 
you have to admit what happened when uh, when the American troop withdrawal occurred. You had an incredible collapse in morale amongst the Afghan National Army. You had uh, air support completely taken away, and as, as well as those civilian and military contractors that maintained Afghan National Air Force's uh, airstrike capability. So when you have all of that, morale collapses, and that is why you have so many soldiers who say, well, we can either be killed or tortured at the hands of the Taliban, or we could perhaps surrender and let our governor strike a deal with them in order to let us live. It, and that it, is what happened over the course of three weeks. Is that the same reason that the, that the Taliban enjoy the, le the legitimacy they enjoy? Is that the same reason that a certain percentage of the Afghan population supports them? That's right. I think, you know, it's, it's all very well and easy to say that these folks are coming, um, you know, are not wanted. But you have to admit that a certain section of society do support them, uh, mostly because uh, perhaps the, the government prior, the Ghani and, and, and uh, the Karzai government before them, didn't have the support of the public, mm. largely, largely due to the endemic corruption are taking place at all levels of society. At the moment, the New Zealand government is working to get Afghans who worked with our military and police safely out of the country. What more should New Zealand be doing? First and foremost, uh, the thought is rightfully, uh, you know, with those uh, New Zealanders, New Zealand passport holders and New Zealand visa holders who are currently trapped in Kabul. And I applaud the Prime Minister and others who are, who are working extremely hard to get them off the ground. In the short to medium term beyond that, though, as you can see, Afghanistan uh, is in incredible trouble. And so beyond that, uh, I'm calling uh, for the New Zealand government to take in an emergency intake of Afghan refugees. This can be done, and it has been done, as well as it was under the key government in 2015 when they improved an emergency intake of Syrian refugees. There is precedent for this, and there is capability within our government to do so. I understand that there are conversations happening uh, behind the scenes uh, for this to take place, and I'm confident that this government will make the right decision. Just give us a bit more detail there, Abbas. Like you say, there is a precedent here. The government took in an emergency intake of, I think, 600 Syrian refugees. But, but, but what makes Afghanistan stand out to you? What, why are refugees in Afghanistan any, any more deserving of a new life in New Zealand than refugees in Yemen or Myanmar or Ethiopia or anywhere else? You know, that is a fantastic question. The concept of fairness and, and a fair go is so entrenched in this society. So, but think about it this way. We have all seen those harrowing images of people climbing onto the uh, tarmac, climbing onto the planes, holding onto the wings of planes and falling to their deaths. The situation there is just indescribably difficult. And so given New Zealand's connection uh, and commitment to the Afghan conflict there, uh, there is a moral responsibility. I watched an interview last week with former Defence Minister Wayne, uh, Wayne Mapp and he, he said exactly the same thing, that we cannot shirk our responsibility. A former, uh, a former government once said that it is the price of being in the club. But at the same time, the price of being in, in the club also means that there is a duty of responsibility to those folks on the ground, particularly those men and women who have helped our guys on the ground uh, come back to safety. And I don't think that there is any, uh, 
uh, you know, middle of the road New Zealander who would argue against that. And that is also a fair go. What do you think New Zealand achieved in Afghanistan? You know, it's very well and easy to look at the cost, both in blood and treasure, of our commitment in Afghanistan. You know, 10 deaths, $300 million spent. And you say, what was it all for? You know, there's a part of me that also angles towards that. But at the same time, when you look at the immense uh, uh, difference made, particularly with the provincial reconstruction teams in Bamiyan, uh, that cannot be underestimated. It was tangible difference to the lives of those people that our troops, um, our troops helped. And I think that regardless of how small it was, that is measurable and that is meaningful. I mean, at its height, when there were more than 130,000 international troops uh, mm -hmm. in Afghanistan, New Zealand committed about 400. That was at its peak, down to about 140, and then finally the elite SAS units. And each of those, I mean, there were countless operations that they took part in. And uh, while I'm here, uh, I guess addressing to the nation, I think I want to thank RNZDF personnel for that commitment. Abbas, finally, what do you think will happen in Afghanistan in the coming months when those foreign troops finally leave? Man, I think if there's something that history has taught us, it is that trying to trying to predict what happens in Afghanistan is a fool's game. Um, in the short to medium term, my thoughts are with those people on the ground around Kabul airport that are just trying to get to safety. And that is where my focus will be. And I hope uh, that Kiwis and this government will, will assist in every way possible. When the news cycle moves on from what's happening in Afghanistan, I hope that people understand the desperation that people are in. And that is why the story in After the Tamper is so relevant and so important. All right. I, I hope, I think one last word, Jack, if I can get it in. I hope that, uh, you know, in reading that book, but also in maintaining these stories, I hope that Kiwis can, can look back and see, uh, look, these guys just want a safety, the ability to thrive in a foreign land, just as we did 20 years ago. And I think that that, uh, that is more than doable. On that note then, thank you very much for your time, Abbas. We really appreciate it. That is Abbas Nazari. And of course, we hope that Abbas's family and friends near Kabul airport are able to find safe passage. Kuumutu, that is Q&A for this week. Before we go, though, we want to acknowledge the death of Sir Michael Cullen. In June, I visited him and his wife Anne at their home in Bay of Plenty for an extended interview, which is available on TVNZ On Demand. We spoke for more than an hour that morning about his life and career, everything from the role of private schools to Rogernomics and the afterlife. He was witty and considered, and it was a real privilege. This morning, our thoughts are with Anne and Sir Michael's family. The One News team will have COVID-19 updates for you throughout the day. Don't forget to tune in for the 1pm briefing. We'll be back next Sunday. Until then, noho ora mai. Stay safe. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.